This is episode 84 of The New Disruptors. Depth takes a holiday with Amanda Warner and Brianna Wu. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part through swiftly.com. It's a new service from 99designs.com that gets small design jobs done fast. For just $19, they match your small design job with the professional graphic designer and complete it in less than one hour. All designers are handpicked from the talented community at 99designs. Update a business card, make a social media backdrop, and much more for $19 and under an hour. Visit swiftly.com new to let them know we sent you. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that welcomes its enormous feline overlords. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part to indie ads, which are underwritten by Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity is making it possible for us to offer short, affordable ads to independent developers and makers. You can find Cards Against Humanity at their own site, cardsagainsthumanity.com, where you can now buy directly from them, including their bigger blacker box. Our indie advertisers this week are Casterly, a podcast app released today that combines discovery of episodes through your Twitter feed alongside support for regular subscriptions, and How to Create an Ebook, a video course that teaches you the simplest way to create and publish an ebook using iBooks Author. Thanks also to our patrons, Kay Schumann, Ted Timmons, and Mike Manzer for supporting us directly through Patreon. You can back this podcast for as little as $1 a month and help us support its production. Visit patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air and send you mugs and t-shirts. Today, I've got with me a very exciting thing. It's uh, uh, We have Giant Space Cats, Brianna Wu and Amanda Warner. They're the co-founders. They released their first game today, Revolution 60. It's out. We're recording this in the past, but we're pretending it's the present. The game shipped today. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. It's a cinematically live-rendered game with rich dialogue and interaction, and it has strong female characters. Brianna is also the co-host of the Isometric podcast that you can find on the 5x5 network. Amanda and Brianna, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank hey, you for let's having crack us. A we have to admit it's in the past, but this is all <laughs> the excitement of when this goes up. Your game will have just gone live probably moments before or a couple hours before in the uh, Apple App Store. That's right. I'm probably out poor shopping right now so when you listen to this. Well, yeah. our expectations of game release are set by things like Indie Game the Movie, where, you know, it was not entirely accidental, but the two companies featured, they sort of winnowed down from a lot of people they followed to two groups, right? Two mm-hmm. small groups. And the end of the movie, you're like, I'm, this is a spoiler, but the movie's been out for years, so I think it's okay. <laughs> Watch the movie anyway. But the end, it's like, they both had two of the most successful, you know, Fez and uh, Super Meat Boy were like two of the most successful independent games ever, I believe. They're in the top, you know, whatever numbers. So the expectation is that everything is a success. This is a problem with Kickstarters and everything else. So we won't know. We're in the black box of how the game performs, but you've gotten a lot of advanced attention about about this, Mm -hmm. um, including, I think, uh, when you demoed it first in 2013 at PAX East, it seemed like the response was very positive from the beginning. Right. I mean, we we really set out to create a kind of game that the market doesn't really make. Um, You know, if you are a gamer, there's no shortage of military shoot-em-ups or you know, simple puzzle games or 2D runners. And what Amanda and I did was really thought outside the box and really aimed very high. So, um, yeah, our game is extremely narrative-based. It's um, lovingly animated, and it's a story. So if you kind of think about the iPad and what makes it such a great device, I think it's really the intimacy of the device. Um, And I just think there's no better medium for telling an interactive story where you get to make the choices and kind of wrestle with what your character is feeling Mm -hmm. and what she chooses to do. And you built this from the the ground up. I know you use the Unreal Engine at the Mm -hmm. base, but it it seems like and reading all your development stories um, over the last many months that you've been 
constantly pushing the envelope about what's possible in that uh, in achieving the release of the game. Uh, it, it's cutting edge in the sense that you're using tools from something that was built from scratch. Your conception of it was built around this engine, this platform. You're not porting another idea. It's not something that was four years old and it's coming forward. You really built this at this time and place and are doing something unique with the, the technology. Yeah, there's no one out there that is doing what we do. Um, we do have a game type that's kind of close to what we do uh, with uh, quantum dynamics. Uh, you know, we, they did Heavy Rain and they did mm -hmm. Beyond Two Souls, which are excellent, excellent games and really influenced us. But we also put our own spin on it. Like we have a very deep combat engine. We have, um, you know, obviously the dialogue wheels for Mass Effect um, that we kind of took. So yeah. we really just merged um, two of the game types that are best known for delivering a really intense story. And we kind of took aspects of it that we liked and kind of mixed it together. And, and to your point, uh, UDK was uh, the mobile provisions just weren't very well documented oh, so we yeah, had to yeah. figure out a lot of stuff on our own and yeah. it's kind of not to get all matrixy and weird on you but like <laughs> you know or, or no i'm oh what was it wanted was that the movie with it where they like fly bullets you know they throw bullets um basically like if somebody told you you couldn't fly or didn't tell you that you couldn't fly the story has gone horribly off the rails, but, <laughs> right. um, but you, you get my idea. Like, you know, we, we were like, all right, this is what we want to do. And luckily we have a very talented engineer who, you know, would hem and haw for a week, but eventually would come <laughs> back to us and be like, okay, here you go. It. This yep. is how we do it. You know, I notice this in development circles. You wind up with people, there are developers who say no, and there's developers who say yes. And sometimes the developers who say yes have no idea what they're doing and some do <laughs> so there's like that you, you get into that path where you're like and if you work with developers saying no it's always a complicated you're always okay look i know it should be possible and the ones who say yes if you have the wrong yes type they really don't know how to do it but if you have the right yes type they're like uh i we had a this is this actually makes sense is uh, my wife and i had a bathroom put in the basement and we have this great contractor works alone he's really smart and um, we talked about this issue with plumbing because it's below grade he's got to, have to put a pump in and whatever and he's like well what do you feel about if the upstairs shower can't be used if you don't have power to draw and we're like all right yeah whatever Whoa. comes back after the weekend and says i figured it out in his head over the weekend he realized yeah. how to re reroute the piping at the right angle from upstairs so that it would use gravity drain i'm like i love you and you find developers like that and they do that they're not on time it's in their sleep and they're like oh yeah okay here's how we solve the problem yeah that is yeah. very that is a very apt description of Maria. Yes, it is. <laughs> she gets these ideas like in her sleep or overnight. She comes back to us the next day. Okay, I figured it out. <laughs> I yeah, love we that. really we have a lot of. There's an inherent. I wouldn't say struggle, but the the dynamic at our company is very much. Uh, you have me as like you know the head of development, and I'm like. I have an idea. We're going forward. Let's do this. Come on. Let's make it happen. And, you know, and then you have Maria, who's very much a lot more conservative than I am with these ideas. And um, so there's that there's that that tension where I will kind of push us in a direction. And there's some give and take where you know, she kind of reins my ideas in a little bit. And we come to something that. You know, I could say the results of our game, when we first did our playtesting, our results were so positive that our publisher, who we since parted ways with, but our former publisher, did not believe the results because they were that positive and made us repeat them with his own testing pool. And we found it was like 94% of players that tried our game rated it either a five or a four on intention to buy out of five. Mm. So it's just crazy how positively people have responded to this game because it's it's unlike anything else out there. Well, we should talk about the, the, the team and your approach to is you're an independent 
game development yeah. company. And there are five of you, right? It's yeah. uh, it's mm-hmm. you and Amanda. There's Maria, yeah. who you already mentioned. And I should note, uh, for listeners, I'll put this in the show notes, is uh, as Brianna wrote this wonderful, wonderful essay about your company and life and children. And oh, my God, it was terrific for the magazine that we published uh, in 2013. And so people can find out a lot of the backstory of Amanda and Maria and Brianna from, from this essay. So I'll, right. I'll link to that. But then and you've got uh, Carolyn and then uh, Frank Wu, the conveniently Frank. similarly named Frank Wu, right, uh, right. working on spaceship design. So the fi- five does. of you, yeah, five Frank. of you putting yeah. this whole incredibly elaborate, deep play game together. Is that, a, is that a challenge to do that with that few people? We're, we're criminally understaffed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, something I've told Amanda and Maria repeatedly is if we cannot double staff, I will not do a sequel because mm-hmm. I can't, I'll die and Amanda will die and Maria mm-hmm. will die. You know, um, it, we, it's been a marathon. Yeah, it really and has. We can't repeat it. <laughs> we want to desperately, but we, we need, we're, we're more mature about, um, our expectations and, yeah. and, and know our limitations. And in order to make it a success, we know, where we need to go with it, you know? Yeah, we, we know what we have to do to ship the product now, and we know it's unrealistic for a core team of three slash four people to get it all done, so... In but a you're timely have done manner. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, you're going to have done it. I mean, that's the that's the thing that's going to be extraordinary from the outside is, okay, this is what you did with... I mean, constraints are wonderful, right? They force you to make decisions, and they force you to prune trees because yeah. mm-hmm. you can't do everything, but then you've achieved all this... People, I mean, I guess I should ask you about the, like, the, the money side of things is at this point in time, I imagine labor is your biggest cost, right? There's not oh, that much yeah. software and There's so much. Really so it's kind of overhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But labor is by far the biggest one. So, Did you yeah. seek outside funding? Did you self-fund? How have you gotten to this point? Well, we kind of, uh, the first part of it, uh, we did self-fund for the first bit of it. And yeah, I'd rather not talk about all the financial stuff mm-hmm. for our company. But, uh, you know, we did get our minimally viable product ourselves, And, you know, we've, we've worked out... The the way we've worked it out, we do own the company. You know, there are going to be a few checks going out after we ship, but right. uh, you know, it's been it's it's been a very um, well. You have to understand, my background is in political fundraising, so this isn't the first time I've done <laughs> stuff like this. In fact, if you're an indie developer, I think doing political fundraising is a fantastic background to own a studio. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, crash course. Yeah. It's, it's been a complex, uh, I mean, any funding challenge for getting half a million dollars for studios never shipped a game. Like it's, it's very challenging, you know? Well, I know there was a point too, uh, last year where you did a, a brief, uh, Kickstarter yeah. and raised almost $13,000, which was interesting to me because I thought at the time it seemed like it was a combination of building excitement, uh, getting mm-hmm. people invested and raising money. But the money to me, I know was significant, but it didn't seem like the most critical component. It seemed like a component, uh, but, but not the thing you absolutely needed. Yeah, no, that's it was it was very much getting our name out there. We got more press from our Kickstarter than we did attending PAX East in 2013 and 2014. So um, it was it was kind of a multifactorial objective there. And if if you know me, you know, I kind of think like a chess master when it comes to this stuff. So we had multiple goals. One was to get the press out there, to get people excited. Kickstarters kind of get a kind of consumer interested in your product that you cannot get any other way. But it was also putting some pieces in place that we would be able to be positioned to make a Mac and PC version that needed to be funded last year. So, you know, that's kind of why we did it. And the basis on, on which you're able to do that is you picked a uh, – I mean, this is one of those issues about platforms is the, there's there can be a lock into a platform like iOS. Uh-huh. But you used a game engine that will let you port it more easily to other platforms. Exactly. Unreal Engine 3 um, – it's it's a fantastic engine, and if we make all the content for Unreal Engine 3, we do have to modify it somewhat, but I can move that over to um, – I could move it to PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, uh, Xbox 360, Xbox One, Mac, PC. We could theoretically do Linux if we wanted to, PlayStation Vita. It's It's basically an engine that lets us port it to many different places. So we're not locked into iOS at all the way some other companies are. 
Which is which is great. I mean, I know there's advantages of of building from the ground up, but then you have the same. You've got the expense issue of uh, yeah. I can I can speak to this at the magazine of using an app that was built custom built for a single purpose. There's a, a a control factor you get there, but then there's the tremendous expense of maintaining something in which you have the sole cost to bear of doing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, not so cool. Well, it's also very expensive to use Unreal. Um, most indie developers go with Unity. You know, that is the most popular choice because it's such a cheaper engine. But, um, you know, the way I've always felt, Glenn, is if I'm going to make something, I want it to be the very best thing I can make. Does that make sense to you? Like, if mm-hmm. I bought my MacBook Pro last year, I bought the best MacBook on the market. And if I was going to spend three years of my life developing a game, I wanted to do it with the best technology that was available, which, in my opinion, is unreal. Well, would you say this has to do with ambition, too, is that you are not setting out to make a small game. You're not saying, we want to sell, oh, if we sell a thousand copies, it'll be great. That was never your intent. Nope. No. And so you started out with the design proposition that we have to use the best tool because it needs to be, you, you can't make the game that you want to sell by not without using the best tool because it won't then sell right you would be self-limiting right. yourself exactly i i really saw it as i know so many indie developers out there that will throw a game together with apple's tools which are excellent by the way but do you know what i mean how many endless runners have you seen how many space shoot 'em ups have you seen how many tap puzzle games have you seen how many you know, of the same game type repeated over and over that one person can make in three or four months. Have you seen? And to me, I didn't just want to make an indie game. I wanted to launch a company. Like I met Amanda and I'm like, this woman is a genius. We should go take over the world. (laughs) You know, great. And I, 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 I really think that in this market, shooting small and crossing your fingers that you have a flappy birds isn't a very viable strategy. So we, we aimed for the stars from the very beginning. It was hard. My eyes bugged out of my head when she's like, (laughs) so unreal brought out this engine and we're totally going to do this. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Bleeding edge is great. You know, uh, I worked at Amazon back in uh, 96, 97 and the, the, the equivalent there was Oracle, was a big database company at the time, but their product was not optimized for uh, transactional-based stuff at any volume. It wasn't driving massive simultaneous retail. And Amazon, uh, after around the time I left, I was only there six months. It was it drove me nuts, and I had to leave for all kinds of reasons. I actually thought it was going to go out of business. So that shows you what kind oh, of business. Really? Oh my God. Yeah, and it, and it may have. Like there's an untold story, not without without not even to reveal any proprietary information at all. It's just they had too much going on and things were going too fast. A lot of it was technological. And because Jeff Bezos is a goddamn genius and he motivates people to, I mean, it's different. Amazon's a different company now, but he motivates people to a ridiculous extent. They Mm -hmm. overcame every single technological problem that I thought was going to kill the company when I left. And one of them was Oracle uh, was not designed to do like millions of operations simultaneously. And they had uh, some uh, people who'd worked very deeply in Oracle then they wound up hiring people who worked on the Oracle kernel. I would argue that Amazon is one of the reasons that Oracle became a better database product. Oracle didn't respond. Amazon told them everything that was wrong with it that wouldn't work and scale for internet companies, and Oracle made changes. I mean, it's not, I mean, no, Oracle made changes on their own too, but Amazon was stress testing it. And so I, I wonder when you talk about, you know, you're on the bleeding edge of what Unreal can do, yeah. how much um, interaction you have with the company? Are they receptive to what you have to say about making their engine better? Have you had to just do workarounds to keep things functioning? The Way you want it to? I, I, we've, we've definitely had to do workarounds. And, you know, I'm not going to lie and tell you that Giant Space Cat is Epic's biggest priority. You know, they've certainly been great partners to us and they've worked with us with tech and have patiently answered our technical questions. Um, I do think that when we got to the point this year of like, look at how awesome our game is, like, we should be working together on this. I think they do kind of sense that Giant Space Cat is a company that's putting out a unique product. Uh, mm-hmm. I was talking to the lead technical evangelist uh, on, what was that, last Friday, Amanda? Friday, yeah. Yeah, Friday. And he was telling me how you know he's constantly looking for people that are doing interesting things with the tech, which is why you know we talk. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but I, I also would tell you that like we don't 
tell Epic, like, hey, we want X, Y, and Z. Like, right. that would be very <laughs> arrogant. They, they, yeah. they, we don't have that kind of relationship. But so. you can say, we're trying to do X, Y, and yeah. Z, and the tool says it should, or we can't find the documentation, yeah. but we're getting, you know, we're getting Q out of the tool, and we should right. be getting this. They've yeah. been fantastic partners. Um, to yeah. any they've indie developer, they've been wonderful. To any indie developer out there, I would recommend, if, if you're shooting high, Epic will work with you. And one of the really cool things, Glenn, I don't know if you know this, but they're, um, you know, Unreal Engine 4, they've greatly changed the licensing terms on it. It used to be that uh, for you to buy Unreal Engine, you had to pay them twenty to $50,000. Mm-hmm. And now they just take a certain flat percentage of your sales. So your interests are kind of more aligned here. Oh, that's great. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So that's going to bring a lot more developers into their platform, though. Than right, has, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, and this is, I mean, uh, I, w- I want to circle around and talk about the origin story here, but I want to finish up on one <laughs> aspect here is is when you talk about de- founding a company as opposed to shipping a game, like making one thing and getting out there, it's like this expertise, you guys now have uh, collectively as much expertise as any people, number of people could have on this, uh, the engine you, you centered on. And mm-hmm. that to me seems like it's going to be invaluable for you, no matter how many people you need to hire yeah. going forward is that you've solved so many problems, you know the answers to these problems. I, I would very I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I would say that Giant Space Cat knows more about creating narrative experiences than any other company out there using the Unreal Engine. And I, I think that's a fact. I mean, especially for mobile. Like we've we've solved problems that people just have not solved before. If you look at Holiday, um, you know, Cyrus, who's the main character of Infinity Blade, um, for Infinity Blade 2, he had about 22 mesh-influencing bones. Um, Holiday has 78 mesh-influencing bones, um, most of them in her face. So mm. when you play our game, you see Holiday, if she's worried, Amanda's put these little twitches and personal touches in there. They really communicates it. And like a character will glance down to communicate pensiveness. I mean, it's it's a really emotional connected experience. And, you know, we had to find technical ways to do that because it, it doesn't work that way out of the box. Let's take a break so I can tell you about our indie advertisers this week, Casterly and how to create an ebook. Casterly is a new podcast app for the iPhone. And I know what you're thinking. There's so many podcast apps out there. But Casterly has a difference. It not only supports regular podcast subscriptions like other apps, but it also discovers episodes for you from your Twitter feed. You link in your Twitter account and it shows you episodes that people are referring to in your timeline or related to it. You can add an episode from your stream with a single swipe in Casterly or in Twitter on any app or on the website. Just fave a tweet and it's automatically added. Added to Casterly. You can stream episodes whenever you like, and episodes in your playlist are conveniently downloaded in the background or on demand. By design, it includes just one playlist. The idea is to have a personalized stream based on your interest as derived by what you're reading and doing on Twitter. Casterly is a result of a year's work by Philip Blackwell, a first-time indie developer. He's proud to ship his product today, and he's looking forward to building a service that changes the way people listen to and discover podcasts. Go to casterly.net. That's C-A-S-T-E-R-L-Y, casterly.net, to download this new kind of podcast app today. How to Create an Ebook is a 90-minute video course that teaches you how to use Apple's iBooks author software to create ebooks for iPads and iPhones and get them posted in the iBooks store. While iBooks author is a free and elegant piece of software, this video course teaches you all the bits and pieces you know to pull everything together. It offers simple step-by-step instructions on everything from installing the software to creating books to publishing an iBookstore. You can take the course at your own pace and you have lifetime access to it. You can watch it again and again on any device. Use the code NEWDISRUPTORS, all one word, for 25% off. Visit createanebook.co. That's createanebook, all one word, .co. Use coupon code NEWDISRUPTORS to get 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. 
I, I was thinking too that uh, I'm not a I'm not a big gamer. We've talked about this. I'm not a big gamer. I'm more of a casual. <laughs> We're gamer still friends, though. That's We're right. Still friends. Well, I have the I have <laughs> the obsessive gaming problem, which is that if I got into games and I have the problem stopping games, so I've sort of oh. I deal the I do the I do more of the casual stuff. But you know, I look around. I played a, a early beta of this game some months ago and was sort of stunned even then by the interaction and the that cinematic quality. I keep seeing that term used to describe it because it, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't feel like a rendered game. It doesn't it, it, on, a, on the devices I'm playing it on. I was playing it on an iPhone five probably at the mm-hmm. time, and it's completely fluid. And when I look at how uh, the gaming sites describe uh, your demo from PAX East or you know subsequent videos and things you've released, that keeps coming up is that there aren't games that look like this. So you've developed not just uh, a unique game in terms of the narrative and the structure on the platform, but you've created something that looks distinct that people can't just say this looks just like blah, blah. Uh, on this platform this is its own thing yeah yeah i amanda do you want to speak to that just i mean it's i guess some of it is you know brianna's artistic vision um and then whatever contributions that i've brought in have been um you know, quips here and there, but, um, a lot of my own body language and, and we're very conscious of the way that we treat the characters and it, it is, it's not something like I've seen out there. I, I think it's a very stylized looking game. One of yeah. the reasons I immediately hired Amanda is if you compare both of our penciled styles, they are frighteningly similar. Um, mm-hmm. like Amanda's is a little bit less, what would you say? Like sexy might be the word Like you might have a little bit less of that, but it's still that, that girliness in the same kind of, um, how would you say it? Like a, a very feminine tilt to it? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, yeah, yeah. probably by virtue of the fact that I am feminine. Um, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, it's always been my approach to, and, and yours too, where like we're going for pretty without it, without objectifying wouldn't you describe it like that like yeah absolutely um my biggest influences like artistically i was utterly obsessed with sailor moon as a child um and i think you can look at sailor moon and look at our art style and see the clear delineation there i was obsessed with space channel five when it came out if you look at a picture of ooh la la and you look at a picture of holiday you can (laughs) kind of see the influences there. And what I really, really wanted to do was to deliver characters that were pretty, but were not like meant to be, you know, male gazed or sexified. Like even though our characters are gorgeous and sexy, it's not exploitative, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, we've had a bunch of discussions on Twitter. Just the other day, it was interesting. Somebody piped up, um, I don't know, asking about it. And between you and I, I think we had this discussion, you know, me from the male perspective of trying to understand what it is and you from the perspective of, of being the creator of this thing is that that distinction between creating something that is uh, visually aesthetically appealing, that can be sexy or not, that can be your, but it's you as women depicting women, you're coming from a different place to create that art and that image from the right. inside out. And men are always, no matter how aligned people identify as men are outside in, and we're used to being the, the gazer, Right. That's right. a whole thing. There's a whole school of film criticism I studied a little bit of in college about the male gaze. The woman is always looking aside. The camera is the male, you know, is the male looking at the woman. Oh, and yeah, so yeah. it's the spectatorship position. And you so even all your stills even are in the gameplay. Uh, your characters are front and center. Um, they control their own agency and they're never being uh, even when they're you're looking at them. They're not the passive recipient of the gaze they are actors and so whether they're whether they're depicted in a sexy way or not they're not sexualized they're not sticking their not doing the hawkeye project style you know ass (laughs) at the camera thing physically impossible (laughs) you don't you didn't put in bones that allow them to break their thighs and pelvises to do that no quite the opposite like when (laughs) first time we rigged holiday like she came back to us with boob jiggle animation rigs and amanda and i were like nope never gotta get rid of them (laughs) and like holiday had nipples and we're like nope gotta get rid of that (laughs) so yeah yeah, i'm like the the only time i would ever use this is like if 
the boob is clipping her arm and I need to move it out of the way. <laughs> that was the only way. That Do you remember hilarious. the day we were at Panera, Amanda, and we kept shrinking the boobs? And like yeah. We got so sick of sending this model back to the person that made the original holiday model. <laughs> and we're like, smaller, 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 smaller. And he goes, he, well, no, if I do it any smaller, it's not going to look right. And we're like, you know what? We'll just do it. And we'll just Amanda, do it. Yeah, we didn't know Maya as well back then. So we just go to Panera Bread. And we just literally just said screw it, and we um we uh we deboobified her a little bit. Uh-huh. Right? So. Well, that's funny. So the so the intentionality is so much in the industry that somebody you hired to make a model could not overcome. Could not. I'm assuming his own sense of what it needed to look like mm-hmm. to to meet your spec. Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that two owners of said <laughs> right, said, right, right said features were like no. <laughs> No, uh, this is wrong. This I got to put like, in the uh, show notes. Did, did you see the image from the uh, Gamer X conference? It's the G A Y M E R uh, X conference. It was the Assassin's Creed Unity uh, cosplayers. Oh yes, yeah. yeah so it's I'll put so the, funny. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's like yeah, boobs are really hard to render. Like, too hard to render, but um, and it's they're a, just giant black blocks. This <laughs> is giant googly eyes on one. It was perfect, but it is. It's it's funny. I want to circle back now. I'm going to go back through time to rewind the clock and um, come with uh, me now because. Uh, you guys both have uh, different illustration backgrounds, but you've come into uh, to make the game. You know, it's a beautiful. I should say, it's a beautiful game. And we'll, I want to talk a little more about gameplay and what the. We'll talk about like the, the plot and so forth later too, so people actually know what the game is about. But um, but it's a, it's a very appealing, visually appealing game. You've done a lot of work there. And Amanda, your background, you've got a BFA in illustration and mm-hmm. had a kind of a winding path to get here. Were you a like drawing obsessively kid? Did you come to illustration later? I, um, I was obsessed with comic books. That was my mainstay, um, especially X-Men in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would make up characters all the time with special powers and all this stuff. Always, always female. Mainly, I, at first I thought it was because that's just what I knew how to draw, but it was just appealing to me. And then I went off to college and, you know, I'm going to do illustration. That's what I'm going to do. And all the other girls in my class were doing um, children's book. And children's book's great, but it just didn't sing to me. And my uh, college professor, Jean-Francois Allot, um, he's obviously French, <laughs> <laughs> and turned me on to a lot of French comics. And, you know, when I expressed to him my desire to do comics, he was like, yes! <laughs> oh, he was waiting for you. Yes, he was very excited. So <laughs> uh, my senior thesis was this um, what was this comic book called Seagate. And um, so I drew that for years after college. Um, it just is just for myself. Like I put it up online and, you know, I tried to submit it a few times, but like, yeah, whatever. But I enjoyed it and I loved it. And I, it turned me on to Photoshop and, you know, really helped me develop a lot of great skills there. And so, yeah, I mean, it was my way of telling a story. And, you know, my prior career was actually something completely different. I was um, I was a retail manager for uh, Williams-Sonoma for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually it was just like, this isn't, the, the company changed. It was great while I was there. I got a lot of great skills, met a lot of great people. Um, but the, the company dynamics changed. And I was like, yeah, you know what? this isn't me anymore. What is it that I want to do? And that's how I, you know, I, I came across a, um, a game development class near, um, in a, a couple towns over thinking that I would do character design and I was introduced to animation, you know, 3d animation. And it was like a duck to water. I was like, Oh mm. yes, this is awesome. I can tell my stories and, and it's faster and this is great. <laughs> Well, and you, it seems to me, if I'm reading your resume correctly, you were kind of in that, there's like a, what do they call it? It's not the, not the donut hole. That's the social security or Medicare thing. It's the, it's that you uh, graduate, you were in college when, uh, cause I graduated in 1990. I have a degree in, uh, in art. I was a graphic designer in college. Wow. That's, a, that's of course why I work as a journalist and programmer now. Of course. Uh, <laughs> we all Makes do. total sense. Absolutely. Uh, but so in 1990, you know, we had desktop publishing. I was working on Macs. It was, you know, we could print stuff out on laser printers. Uh, the online world was non-existent. You're a, a little bit younger or somewhat younger than I am. And, uh, but you still graduated at a point where like the web comics world was not yet present, right? Like this was a little bit before that totally took off. Yeah. 
I mean, it was still, I, I think the, the website was called um, Keen Space. And, you know, it was a, it was a free self-publishing thing. And it was among, you know, very few. That was, you could do it that way. They had templates and everything kind of like, it was kind of like WordPress, you know, back in the day. Um, but then the other alternative was to make your own website with HTML. And that wasn't as accessible as it is now, I think. But yeah, it wasn't, um, there were very few. There were no commerce tools, no. too. Yeah, we t- I have talked to a bunch of web comics artists. Most of them seem to have started, there's with a couple exceptions between about 2003, 2005. And there was sort of a sweet spot where the tools got just, well, good enough. People were suddenly all on broadband in large enough quantities. And there were a few ways to monetize. Yeah. You could make PayPal and then you could use, you could sell, like, you know, or even like Jonathan Colton, he started in 2005. And it was partly because he could actually start charging for stuff fairly easily. And he had some programming skills too, but it feels like there's like that, not a missed opportunity, but the point at which you started was maybe before that. And then 2010, you make this change in your career. You you decided to go full time, right? To take to get a, a, a certificate or degree and and yeah. head for three D animation. Yeah, pretty much. And then I got married and had a baby, <laughs> <laughs> which I com- I commend and appreciate. Yeah. Uh, babies are wonderful. Babies are wonderful. How old is babies your ba- How old is your old is your baby now? Oh, she's two now. Two. Okay. Oh, that's right. You know, it's funny because I I know these things a little bit through Brianna's essays and through there's this timelessness. I know like somewhere in there, I know too much about your life, but not enough. I oh, on the public was- parts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a tumultuous year. I mean, it was oh, it was, it was crazy. the craziest yeah. year of my life. Like, here I'm going to complete. Like, my husband and I both uprooted our lives. Like, we both changed careers, and then surprise, you're pregnant. <laughs> Everything in life always happens at once, no matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you plan. It's actually traditional to go through. Like, uh, I had friends who they got married, moved, and she had this giant, you know, benign tumor removed the same year that ever, no one even knew about, oh. like all within the space of three months. It's like, you oh can't control God. some factors. You only think you can. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I cling to the idea that God only throws as much as you can handle. Um, <laughs> You've survived this fall. You survived the, this far. This but, that, that year was bananas. I just yeah, have it, to say like, well, that was bananas. Yeah. I mean, Brie was with me as I, um, we put together a wedding in six weeks. Oh my God. And, <laughs> You know, you, you talk about pruning trees, like it leaves you no time to second guess yourself. I highly recommend it. I really like stress level through the roof, but then you're done. So a wedding is a small company too. Like I've thought of a wedding as a limited duration company, mm-hmm. uh, just like a staging a play or whatever. It's like my wife, my wife was the manager of that for us. And we unfortunately planned way too far in advance. So we had a year, we had a year of our oh. company running, but you know, the company did well. It, you know, it, it Good. broke even at the end. It all went <laughs> <laughs> we finished not in the black or in the red, uh, and every and, and we achieved All our goals. All parties are happy with the turnout. It's good. That's right. We have wedding magic always oh. works. And, and so Brianna, I was uh, back up to your history too, because wow. you have you've yeah. got this big space in the middle too. It's very. I'm I'm really curious. If people come to being able to own what they do, and sure. uh, you had an uh, you started an animation company or animation studio at age. 19, if that tells us there's anything about the ambition of Brianna. Uh, What was the product you were trying to make or the game or the thing you were shipping at age 19? Well, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. My parents, um, I, it it scares me as an adult how similar I am to my dad. Um, (laughs) Yeah, my dad um, grew up in a very poor town in Mississippi called Delo, Mississippi, which had more people per capita die in World War II than any other town in the United States to the point that there's no one there. So it is a dead, dying town with closed shops everywhere that completely represents this, like, economy that just fell apart. Um, So my dad went into the uh, Navy to get his medical degree, and he got out and he opened up his own clinic, which is now worth multi-million dollars and is a huge part of this huge uh, healthcare conglomerate. Um, so my dad is absolutely an entrepreneur and was very successful. And from there has gone and started many other businesses, apartments, complexes, like different retail outlets. So I grew up in a family where my mom was getting computers in the eighties, um, you know, when computers really didn't they weren't around as much um, mm-hmm. to kind of run all of these businesses that she was owning. And oh, yeah. they were 
they were starting up corporations. So my entire childhood was like going with my mom to the lawyer to like hearing her stories about this or setting up her computer to do X, Y, and Z, which of course, you know, I completely took apart and played games with and <laughs> ran up, you know, I remember one summer I ran up like a $500 bill on Prodigy, like emailing oh, I got, people. I got to raise, got to raise my yeah. hand. I had the same thing. CompuServe, yeah, yeah, CompuServe, yeah, huge yeah. bill, took me years to pay my parents back, but right. ultim- ultimately they were happy with the outcome given my career right. choices. Sure, sure. So, but that is to say, um, you know, I definitely look around at sometimes the lack of female entrepreneurs. And I think for me, it was very much a product of my background. So I was mm-hmm. 19 and I'm like, yeah, I can do this. Why can't I do this? You know, like my parents are doing that and they helped get me connections and all of that. And uh, so when I was 19, uh, South Park was very, very hot. And um, basically I assembled my own animation company where we did it for, I think it was $250,000 that we bought a house and turned into this animation studio and I hired people and, you know, we we discovered ways of doing technology, of doing animation um you know, very cheaply and efficiently. And, um, you know, it basically completely failed uh, this, uh, this, you know, my very first company. But that's what you kind of do when you're 19 and you're handed $250,000. So, you know, from there, I've always been someone that's just pursued my passion. I've never really felt limited. And I've always been willing to take risks. So immediately after that, I said, all right, I'm going to drop out of college and I'm going to move to D.C. and I'm going to go work in politics. And I did that. (laughs) So I went and did that for a few years. And then I got out and I'm like, I'm going to go work as a graphic designer for a few years with my (laughs) self-taught skills. And I went and did that. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go finish my college degree and I'm going to become a journalist. And I did. I did investigative journalism for a few years. And then, you know, Apple came out with the iPhone. When are you an astronaut? There's a point you're going to become an astronaut, right? And then you're going to space because that I was going to say, that seems like the next logical step here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's this is what I was meant to do. And it's it's really cool to me that all these prior adventures I've had have really culminated to me being extremely good at my job. Um, so I don't know. It's I hope I never have to have another career other than this one, but uh, I'd certainly consider it if I had to. <laughs> yeah. But that's – I mean that, this is that problem. I've had exactly the same thing as I've had right. – like uh, every 18 months I have to reinvent my career and I've had I've right. had a job in 17 years basically. <laughs> and um, I haven't worked – I haven't worked full-time for anybody in that period of time. And uh, like on one side – I mean it's interesting to contrast the two of you too is right is, – is Amanda, you're working in a field that wasn't – didn't float your boat. You were good at it clearly. You were there 15 years but wasn't <laughs> your ultimate destiny. Mm-mm. Rihanna, you were going from strength to strength obviously yeah. as well but you wind up – you collide in this new this new space there's a lot of talk right now about how hard it is to be independent and developing any kind of mobile software and you started enough years ago now in this game and it's shipping today that maybe you missed the wrong window like is this the wrong window Do you, is, is there something that's closed down between when you guys were able to uh uh start on this project and where we are today about other people being able to get into this space I don't know. I think that uh, in the time being, I could definitely see in 2010, you know, 2011, when we started this, that I saw that the market was bifurcating and I could tell that AAA studios were going to die. And I could tell that it was going to cease to be the case that someone could develop a product with a team of one person and have a viable game. And I think that it's it's definitely moved in that direction. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, I think we're... The- yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, yeah. when we when we got started, the independent field was definitely burgeoning. You know, like it, it was becoming uh, this like Shangri-La <laughs> where people could go to. Yeah. Um, and I think it actually is still held up on that kind of a pedestal, too, especially with all the AAA studios that are closing down. As people are like, you know what, I'm going to go out and do my own thing. And there's a lot of talented people who will do well and then they're just statistically there's going to be people who 
don't. Yeah, yeah. And it sucks. Well, we've talked it a little is, to people yeah. in the past a little bit about the AAA studio thing that, like, it used to be, I mean, the big game companies will put years, I mean, you've put years in this too, of course, but we'll put years into games. They have franchises support. They can be spending tens of millions of dollars or more, but the payoff, if they're successful, is still ridiculous, like a blockbuster movie. But the failure, they don't have the same way to absorb it the way the movie no. studios do. They can't average out that they may have bet their entire company on two or three games if they're lucky yeah. and yeah. one or two misfires and they're dead. Done. Yeah, that seems like a really difficult position to run. I mean, that seems like it creates the position uh, for people like you with a, not maybe a one-person shop, but a small studio. You build, again, the strength, the strength thing. You build this game, and then maybe you build more, and you get mm -hmm. bigger, but it's organic. It's not all the you know eggs in one giant, giant basket. Yeah, but it's still scary. I mean, if Rev60 fails, like our company will close and we'll have to go get different jobs. So, you know, like it's we definitely feel that that fear as well. So I hate you that know. sense of not knowing. Like there's no way to predict the future. There's no way to predict what's the success. And this is the I keep coming back to this issue of it's like attention is the scarcest commodity right now. The Internet's divided attention into a billion, billion pieces. And mm -hmm. even if you have the greatest thing in the world, you have to figure as we record this, Ryan Block and, and Veronica Belmont, a married couple who are both uh, – <gasps> You, yeah, where you bring, oh, you're bringing yeah. this right. So yeah. they had this call. They were trying to cancel their Comcast service. And uh, Ryan recorded the part. Veronica was on the phone for a while and actually was like visibly upset. He took over the call, like spelled her and recorded this thing. And it's gone crazily viral. Like I saw it uh, the night he posted it and people are talking about it on Twitter. There were 50,000 listens. At this point, there are 4 million listens yep. to this 10 minute crazy thing. So you can't create that. Ryan didn't post it to get 4 million hits he's not even monetizing it but it is it's always fascinating to watch the viral meme in action has that as it happens a uh, business insider had this great story about this guy who made a joke about um uh i think on twitter about oh chrissy from high school didn't have the time of day for me then now you want me to do such and such on farmville the tables have turned and he's like it's the funniest thing i've ever written and this guy's not a comedian and it's been stolen and retweeted and, and again you can't predict that but we base our lives on when we're in some kind of media related thing you're this game i'm doing you know running a publication we base our lives on the idea that we have to spark something we don't necessarily need a billion a billion would be nice it doesn't cost us any more to do a billion sales but we know there's some amount we need to get and it's outside of our control how do you how do you cope with that i'd like to know because i'm coping with it myself uh, <laughs> i don't know I, mean, I, I think i think risk is a certain just part of my personality. I mean, I ride a motorcycle, for instance, which is a very risky endeavor. And uh, I don't know. It's it's something I had my eyes to going into it. Um, I've also have worked to, you know, have backup plans for a company. You know, if if we if Rev sixty does not make enough cash to you know make a sequel out of hand. Uh, you know, our company is good enough at cinematic content that I can think of other games and other companies and other intellectual properties that we would be a fantastic fit for. And, you know, I plan to go to those companies and say, let us create you an awesome game. I It, it definitely keeps me up at night. Part of, you know, being head of development is I feel extremely responsible for Amanda being able to pay her rent, Carolyn being able to pay her rent, you know, Maria being able to pay her rent. It it. It makes me feel real responsibility to my people, but I think you just kind of have to accept it at a certain point. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't. And Amanda, I want to ask you something specifically since you came from working in the retail background. Mm -hmm. You know all the games that were played in the in the like the physical world is a fascinating one in retail. And some of the s secrets of book selling have come out in terms of uh, I mean not exactly secrets, but like co-op dollars where Barnes and Noble gets paid money by publishers to put books in specific places. That's been known. It's yeah. not illegal and so forth. You dealt with that on the on the retail side. Is there more predictability of how something will sell when? Uh, when the manufacturers and the retailers are organized to sort of promote certain kinds of things where the financial interests align as opposed to people finding being desperate to get the latest um, Hori, <laughs> Hori Hori knife or Hori Hori knife or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, like it, there would definitely be things that were surprising, you know, like, oh, I did not expect that to be as big a deal as it was like uh, peppermint bark. I mean, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yes. So that that was, you know, something that they were just experimenting with and has become this staple. I mean, I think it when I left, I think it carried the company, to be honest. 
Um, <laughs> That's hilarious, but I get so, it. And yeah. so, you know, it, it gets front and center every Christmas. It, it, arri- it would arrive in our, our stock room in September, and everybody in the back room would groan. <laughs> We're like, oh, here it comes. <laughs> um, there's definitely... A, a little bit more predictability, I would say, with with the retail stuff. There were def- there were you know ebbs and flows. When you knew when it was going to be slow, you could you could tell you knew your busy time of year. Like I did half my business in the last three months of the year. You know the Christmas season. Um, so, I, well, you're a marketing I, engine to bring people in the door too. I would think that's got to be a big yeah. thing, right? Or no? I mean, well, I mean, they did most of their advertising with. Um, with the catalog that was pretty much Mm -hmm. the prime the primary marketing campaign and just recently within the last few years they've started advertising in like home home magazines which has been great but there were definitely you know calculated moves as to where certain items were placed to you know to catch the eye like if you go into um if you go into a clothing store like if you go into ralph Lauren or something it's going to be all women's clothes right at the front door because you know they know that women are walking through the mall and we go oh cute and like you know tear everybody who's with them into the store like they there's there's definitely that kind of approach to it and there's no front door of the net. I mean, even with the app yeah. store, like when the app store had thousands of apps, then you could make a stand. And, and Apple's categories and organizational tools do not benefit, I think, discovery of interesting things. They, they benefit discovery of what other people have already risen in the rankings mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, this is a, a, a funny – yeah, a funny ongoing thing is that the magazine on the iPhone side of the app store, um, it shows up as a top grossing app because, which is weird because we're not huge, we're small, but um, we, you know, decent revenue, but we show up behind like The Economist and ahead of other national publications because we're born digital. So we get this high ranking because the other people are selling their subscriptions through their site. People come and they activate the app, they log in. So we appear to be, I mean, it's a great thing for visibility, but without Mm -hmm. that, we would be practically invisible by scale, even if we were the highest ranked or whatever app or content thing. Then there's the issue of like, of structure like um we're a magazine app and we have content in it you're more aligned that you have a game and people aren't rating the engine people in my case and in some apps cases are rating both the way something works its interface its flow whatever apart from what the thing is actually about and selling i mean they're interrelated uh and i think as a game you're much better aligned that people are actually rating you know playability and narrative and so forth all at once. But sure. I guess the, the point I was trying to make is, I'm, I, got, I got us off topic a little bit, is that uh, <laughs> uh, on the, the App Store side, but it's that we can't control the placement. We don't have no. control over Apple. And we, you can't pay for placement in the App Store. You have right. to hope that, um, as I'm hoping today, uh, a week <laughs> before, this, before the game launches, I'm hoping Apple is giving you amazing, fantastic placements when this launches. There's a giant, uh, giant, giant Space Cat logo and, uh, right. and pictures right. from the game, and that would be awesome. But the unpredictability part is like, you could sell as few as zero of something digitally yeah. when you yeah. don't control it. But again, Apple could deliver, like I say, a billion copies of your game. And for you, there'll be some customer service overhead, but there's no additional cost. Yeah. So you don't have the predictability, but you also have the top is completely blown off as opposed yeah. to, you know, shrink wrap games being sold in a game store in the past. Yeah. 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 And having to eat physical goods that don't sell. Yes, ramen yeah, and physical yeah. goods. You eat them both to get, yep. to get that far. But right, there's no, you have no inventory, and that's the advantage and all the disadvantage, too, is you can't push it. You can't discount it You know, to move it in a store. I mean, you can have sales in the game. But, right. Um, well, if you don't mind me saying about that, like what – you know, Glenn, I'm a huge Apple fan. I, I love Apple products. I'm the only member of GSK that uses a Mac, and I – From the very beginning, I see all kinds of what I consider to be mistakes that I see male-dominated game dev teams making in regards to delivering products for the Apple devices. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the App Store, it is more female-dominated than any other like market for games in history, like more than NES, SNES, PlayStation, it is an extremely female-friendly marketplace. Um, and I think if you kind of combine that with the fact that a lot of teams out there are still delivering this 
this product that's kind of playing with a different set of rules, I think there's some misalignment of what the priorities are. So, you know, in speaking to getting the game out there, like what we asked from the very beginning when we were making this game type is what makes a product Apple-y? Like what Mm. makes a game compatible with Apple's um, vision? Um, And this is something I thought a lot about. Um, You know, Rev60, from the beginning, we made accessibility for casual players a priority more than any game I'm ever aware of, of our our scope and size. Like Infinity Blade, another game made with the Epic Engine, is a fantastic game, but it also kind of assumes you're a hardcore player going into it. Um, And for us, like we said what is going to be a proper difficulty curve for someone that doesn't play games and just wants to pick up an app. And we went out of our way to go find, you know, players that had no experience and just wanted to experience a story. Uh, We picked a combat engine type that was very intuitive. We went through hundreds of iterations to be able to find out what people were getting confused about. So, I can't see the future and know what Apple is going to do or they're not going to do. I can tell you they are aware of Rev60. And my hope is when they, you know, look at the game, they see the care at which we've tried to make our goals compatible with their audience. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, a ton. I think in a, as a casual gamer, when I played the beta, I immediately, and this was months ago, so it was... Uh, you obviously hadn't developed the mechanics as further as as far as they are now. Yeah. I was able to pick it up and play. You taught me how to play, and yeah. uh, and I didn't feel. That's my concern too. When I get when I see people play the hardcore games, I think, hey, I'm not really, you know. And actually, Revolution sixty, I'd have to say, it strikes an excellent balance for me too, and not feeling violent, even though you're engaged in you know combat activities. I have a very low threshold for for gore and violence, and I thought mm-hmm. it it doesn't turn me off uh-huh. uh, that way. And I was able to, like I say, pick it up and be engaged in the narrative and play it right away and not feel like, all right, I'm going to have to go like watch an hour training video and get myself, right. what's, the, what's the button in the joystick? <laughs> I know it's, I can use my fingers. I don't have to learn A, B, A, B, you know, left, right, left, right. We worked so hard on that, Glenn. I mean, we worked on the narrative, but we worked just as hard at letting people that weren't gamers pick it up and understand it, but also to offer a core difficulty level. So people like, frankly, me can pick it up and and play it and have deeper combat. So we worked really hard on that. Well, I think it, I think it shows. And, um, you know, so there's one other thing I want to ask you about, because I think this gets into the, the managing expectations side of things Mm -hmm. is, uh, you originally planned to ship this months ago and, and there's been delays and everything is always delayed, but you're in an interesting situation is that it's, uh, you know, you're not delivering a cancer drug to Alaska, so (laughs) no one is dying. Um, and you've got, uh, and without, you know, getting into the financial structure, you've got investment in this game. So there's clearly people whose expectations are managing internally. And then I would guess also you have the don't want to lose the buzz thing that you have people interested in it, waiting for it, excited for it. And there's a point at which they're like, Ah, whatever. And we certainly haven't reached that judging by the buzz around you getting close to shipping. How have you worked with dealing with, um, as you've had a revised shipping deadlines, or uh, how have you dealt with managing different sets of expectations? And also, uh, obviously, it's a small staff, but your own staff in terms of making, you know, you've got payroll to meet and people have their own lives to, to work around. You guys are working so intensively for so long. How have you managed that whole process? One word, respect. Mm. Um, I, I used to feel like spending time on Twitter, for instance, was a waste of my time, but I've come to see it is an excellent use of my time to get out there, communicate with the players, to talk to them about what we're working on, why we're working on it, why it's delayed, why we're doing X, Y, and Z. And I can tell you personally, Mm I, I, Every single person that's interested in Rev60 that reaches out to me, I really try to take time and talk to them and to develop a kind of respectful rapport. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Um, Also, as far as keeping my staff, you know, keeping morale going, um, I'm a very flawed leader. But, Amanda, I would hope that over the years we've worked together, you would feel how much I respect you and care about you, not just 
like I care about the quality of your work, but I care about you as a person. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm proud of what we've done together. And I, I certainly fail at that sometimes, but I try to take time and make that kind of personal connection with my, with my partners, you know, not my employees, my partners at this. So Amanda, you might have more feedback on that than I do. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you go out of your way to make sure that we're cared for often to your own, uh, your own detriment. Um, <laughs> but you know, at the same time, we're, we all believe in this project desperately too. You know, so we're, there are definitely times of stress because it's it's just going to happen. Everybody's very passionate about what they're doing and what they're putting out. And we've been lucky enough to be able to ride through tough times um, and all arrive at this point together, which doesn't happen (laughs) often. (laughs) Yeah. but yeah, like having having that emotional investment from everybody just means that you're going to get a stellar product all around. Yeah, yeah. That sounds, and, that sounds fantastic. I mean, this is, you know, this is always the Kickstarter thing, especially, is that people start to get, some percentage of people get irate about delays. And it varies, I think, inversely to how much something seems like a product and how something seems like supporting an effort. And uh, often with physical products, people get more irate because they want the utility from it. When something's mm-hmm. software or, or a game, and this, or, you know, this game is software, obviously, but a game, it feels like there may be less uh, ire about the shipping time because whenever they get it, they're going to have some enjoyment out of it over a period of time after it, as opposed to, well, this is no longer useful to me. My dock, you know, Apple released a lightning connector. My dock no longer works. Right. So oh. <laughs> to mention one. Yeah. Case. Yeah. Uh, so expectation. This is great. This is great. So the, you don't have people who are angry about where things are at because you've yeah. kept them in touch and communicated whatever mm-hmm. kind of role they have in relationship, whether a customer or otherwise with, uh, with the product. I, I, I also have to, have to say, say, oh, go ahead, Amanda. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, um, at, at least outwardly, um, I'm, I'm not always appraised of the private messages that, <laughs> but at least publicly, um, anytime we've said, Hey, we're, we've got a delay or whatever. It's always messages of support. Like yeah. everyone's like, great, just keep going. You can do it. You know, you're almost there. Like we've had this really large cheering section that, that, you know, Breeze made these connections with, and um, they've really kept us going. Yeah, I hope you don't mind me saying there is there is Giant Space Cat. Our company has it, it was never my intention to make it this, but it's kind of become this symbol for women in gaming journalism and female gamers and female game developers of kind of. It's a symbol because it is Amanda, Maria, Carolyn, and I doing this together. And yeah, Frank helps as well. But yeah, the the core team is definitely female. And you can look at the product we've put out there and see this this edge to it. You can also see for me as head of development, I do speak up very frequently on, you know, issues of women in tech, which have become a radioactive hot topic as of late. Yeah, during so, I know during the time yeah. you've been developing this game, it's gone from sort of background radiation to yeah. right like like mm-hmm. no the the reactor is boiling over and yeah. um and no Way one's gonna, people aren't gonna take it anymore. No. Well and I can see that too. The we we were talking before the podcast, like nobody complains about all male game dev studios or all mm-hmm. male leadership teams or whatever, but you have one company that is all female game devs and suddenly it's, oh my God, what are they doing? They must be discriminating. It's like, well, why would you make that assumption that assumes that there are only a tiny number of competent women so that you have to have men involved 50-50 at least? Uh, Or in the the Gina Davis uh, Institute (laughs) had the study, the, uh, what is it? It's like if 17% of the participants in a group are female men think it's half and if it's 30 something yeah. percent men think it's the majority you know, vast majority it's like no you guys i mean you found each other for various reasons but it's it's weird how that gets called out it shows it highlights that issue that there is this misapprehension about what you know it's also you're in a creative field it's technical and creative field i see this all the time where i think how can conference x and i've seen a bunch lately like this year even where it's like how do you have 19 men some of whom are people of color and some not, but mostly white guys and one woman 
on your list of speakers when you're in a field that involves creativity. Like there's not even an excuse that 30% of the people in the field are women. It's no, no, this is a field in which 50 or 60% easily are women. And you've managed, how did you even do that? And and I see that reflected in, in the response to your studio. Yeah. That everyone assumes you're discriminating where no one assumes that men are discriminating in the opposite case. Right. And I, I also want to say for that, moving into the sequel, um, I, I totally believe that companies are better off with a, a mixture of both genders. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think, um, well, let me give you an example. My husband doesn't have a background in, in, you know, computer development. He has a PhD in bacterial genetics, but he is, he has four Hugo awards and he, he designed a lot of our architecture. We are going to hire someone out there to kind of work with his design sense for the sequel. Amanda and I found a candidate recently who is a guy and seems like a really good fit. Like he's obviously spent a lot more time looking and thinking about tanks than I have, you know? Um, and I think our studio would benefit from that perspective. You know, and I think for us, it's it's we do realize that going forward and that is a goal of ours, you know, so I don't know. It's it's at the same time, I do think that there is a place in the industry for a female led female centric studio because this is such an overwhelmingly a field that's so overwhelmingly dominated by men. And I think it really shows in the product that's out there where women are sex symbols and sex objects and barely characters and, you know, just a shallow, empty stereotype more often than we're not in games. Mm-hmm. Well, people can check this out right now. It's the exciting part. <laughs> yeah, you can listen, now that you've listened to this podcast, go to the app store and you've got a, the PC game is on the radar uh, from the Kickstarter. So there'll be a PC yep. version of this as well. Uh, but right now, if you have an iOS device, you can go to the app store. Go to revolution sixty six zero dot com for the link or go to the app store and search on Revolution 60 and get Giant Space Cats first release. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you this so is, much. Yeah. Are we a new disruptor now? You're, you're, that, you've, new, yeah. you've newly disrupted. Oh, you've really disrupted the space. Clearly, based on, based on early accounts, you've already disrupted the space, and now people will be imitating your style. That's the exciting <laughs> part. I hope they do. Our game type is awesome. So. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being on the show. Glenn, you're one of my favorite people in the entire universe, so <laughs> I consider <laughs> this an honor. Thank you very much. You well. cannot see me blush on the air. Oh. I'll post it. Thank you yeah. very much. Thanks again to Swiftly.com for helping to support this episode of The New Disruptors. Swiftly.com is a new way to get small design tasks done inexpensively and fast. For just $19 per task, you get the job done within an hour by one of the great designers who's part of 99designs.com. There's a 100% money-back guarantee. You describe the job you want, prepay the $19 flat fee, and they match you with a designer handpicked from their community. It's turned around within an hour and often within 35 minutes. Go to swiftly.com slash new to give them a try and let them know we sent you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.